0: Today is a, uh, is a big day for us uh, here at Calvary. Uh, today we complete what has been nearly a two year study through the gospel account of Matthew. Uh, many people have come and gone through our study. Uh, pastor Mike, uh, the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel at Iwakuni, uh, started uh, this study back in April of 2013. And uh, our very own Roy Thelma, uh stepped in during the summer of that year while uh, Mike and his family were away uh, on furlough. And then in September, uh, after the Lord had called Pastor Mike to return to his hometown of Orlando, Florida, uh, to take over a Calvary Chapel there, Uh, I was able to step in and and picked up where Roy had left off, and so we've been kind of handing this on, this relay race, as we've been uh, going through it. Uh, It's been a lot of fun going through this book, Uh, and and for those of you who have been with us from the start to finish, I congratulate you on making it uh, all the way to the end with us. Uh, Hopefully it was uh, enjoyable for you as well. Uh, I know that... um, I've enjoyed just the study of it and being able to present it to you guys very much. I hope the Lord has spoken to you in in various ways, uh, through various portions of Scripture that we were going through and through various seasons that you've gone through in the last uh, nearly two years. And so uh, it should be uh, just as exciting uh, for those of you who have a uh, a couple of years still here in Iwakuni and you think you're going to hang out with us. We're going to be heading into the book of Acts next. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to just really it's a continuation of the narrative of the disciples of what the Lord did in and through them after Jesus's ascension. And so we kind of uh, we're going to finish Matthew's gospel account. Today, we get the Great Commission, and then we're going to see them fulfilling that Great Commission. And we're going to follow in their footsteps through the book of Acts. So I'm confident it'll be a great time uh, in God's Word. But before we get to Acts, we, we do need to finish off the book of Matthew. So go ahead and make your way there if you haven't yet. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. Today, uh, we are going to uh, cover 28, starting, uh, chapter 28, starting in verse 11 and we're going to make our way to the end of the chapter in the close of Matthew's Gospel in verse 20. Okay? All right. Uh, today we will also have a, a time of communion, so I wanted to just encourage you guys to be prayerful about that uh, and to be preparing your hearts during our time of service uh, to partake of communion at the close uh, of our time to this morning. All right. Will you please stand as we read this morning's text? Again, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 11. Follow along with me as I read. Uh, Again, I'm reading from the New King James Version, so some of you may not have the same version as me. Just do your best to, to follow along, starting in verse 11. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away, away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Matthew closes it out with an amen. Amen. Let's, let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for this morning, the the privilege that we have to gather in your presence, to gather with our brothers and sisters, to spend time uh, honoring you, worshiping you, seeking your face, and and, Father, to receive from you, from your word. We pray that you would lead and guide our time of study. Father, I pray that the message you've laid upon my heart, uh, this study, that it would be used. Uh, to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do thank you uh, just for all of those who are here with us this morning. Uh, Lord, coming through the rain and still being here, what a blessing it is to have them. Lord, we pray for those that aren't able to be with us, those who may be deployed or doing exercises or are homesick. We pray your blessings upon them. Lord, we also pray for the other churches and chapels that are meeting here this morning uh, in Iwakuni. We pray your blessings and your spirits empowering upon all that goes on. We lift this up to you this entire morning, our service, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. We last left off reading of how Mary Magdalene, uh, uh, along with the other Mary as she was uh, referred to, Uh, and a few other ladies had discovered the empty tomb. And they were greeted uh, by an angel that reminded them of Jesus' teaching of His resurrection. And they were then instructed to go and tell the disciples of the good news and to remind them of uh, a future meeting in Galilee. And as they went obediently to deliver that message, uh, we noted that... uh, Jesus appeared to them. the ladies fell at the lord 's feet and they worshipped him and He then encouraged them to be faithful to to the task at hand and to uh, and sent them on their way to deliver that message to the disciples and While that was taking place, something else was going on, and that is where We read here in our first few verses, verse 11 says, Now while they were going, the they being the ladies, while the ladies were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Okay, we'll look at this, okay? While the ladies were on their way to deliver the message of the empty tomb and the risen Lord, the guards too, they went on their way to deliver the same news, really, That there was uh, an empty tomb, and they were going to deliver that news. Uh, As we see, the guards, they entered into the city, the city of Jerusalem, and they went straight to the chief priest with all the news of what had happened. Now, some people have asked, why would they go to the chief priest? We have to remember that these guards, they were given over to the chief priest to do with them as they pleased by Pontius Pilate. If you guys recall in our study uh, a few uh, weeks ago the chief priest they had gone to Pontius Pilate okay and they had uh, the day after the crucifixion and they explained to him that while Jesus was still alive that he made a claim to be able to rise from the day from the dead on the third day and they requested from Pilate to make the tomb of Jesus as secure as possible to prevent Jesus' disciples from coming in uh, and stealing the body uh, away and allowing them to make a claim that he had risen from the dead. Pilate agreed to assist them and gave to the chief priest a detachment of guards. Uh, We don't know how many. We know it was more than a few. uh, Based upon the the wording here, uh, how many we don't exactly know though. But these guards... Uh, they were sent to watch over the tomb of Jesus Christ. We joked last week how that was probably the easiest job they thought they'd ever have. Make sure this dead guy doesn't get out of this tomb. And it's like, well, that should be pretty easy. Um, these guards, they show back up in the city and they begin to tell the chief priest all that had happened. Okay? We don't know exactly what they said or how they said it, but I think it's safe to assume that they, they didn't leave out any details. I imagine they told the chief priest how while they were keeping watch over the tomb, that in the wee hours of the third day, a bright light all of a sudden appeared in the sky. And the light was descending from heaven, and as it drew nearer to them, they were able to, in their mind's eye, put together the image of an angelic being. No doubt they described the, the countenance of the angel, how it was like lightning. And how the clothes were as white as snow. They no doubt informed the chief priests that when the angel came to arrest before them, that he proceeded to roll back the large stone that covered the opening to the garden tomb, thus breaking the seal that was upon it and opening up the tomb of Jesus Christ. They must have told them about the great earthquake that was triggered by the appearance and action of that said angel, no doubt the chief priests themselves would have felt the earthquake as well. It's a small uh, general area. And so they felt the earthquake. They're going to say, hey, that earthquake happened as soon as the angel was there and started rolling back that stone. It was incredible. Although... It's not a complimentary detail. I'm sure they even shared about how the presence of that angel caused them to freeze in fear. And how they eventually were so overwhelmed that they all fainted and fell to the ground like dead men. Though we don't read in any of the gospel accounts what the soldiers did when they immediately came to, I imagine that they had to have looked into the tomb as well. I know I'm taking a little bit of uh, leisure a uh, license to, to say so, but... After all, it was their responsibility to ensure uh, that the body of Jesus remains in the tomb. And it's illogical to think that they would run to tell the chief priest of all that had happened without first verifying whether or not the body of Jesus was still in the tomb. I have no, no doubt whatsoever that they looked inside the tomb. And they saw the same things that the disciples would see when they would later look into the tomb. They would have seen the empty grave clothes, the linens, just lying across a, a hewn-out rock, a bench-like area. They would have seen the neatly folded handkerchief that John tells us about in his gospel. Uh, by the way, I'm going to throw this out here just if anybody's interested. The garden tomb, and I've seen pictures of it. I was going to put a bunch of pictures up here, but I, I, I didn't, so forgive me. But we're going to be going... I mentioned about a month ago about a trip to Israel... And I want to let you guys know that that's going to happen uh, this summer. And so if you're interested, the Garden Tomb is one of the places that we will be going. And you'll be able to peek in there and see. And uh, it's really incredible. If you're interested in going, come see me after church. We need to finalize who's going, who's not going. If you're interested, come get details. Okay? All right. So they would have looked into there, and they would have told the chief priest about the empty tomb. All these things they would have told the chief priest. It tells us they told them everything, all that had happened. Okay? And now the chief priest they needed to respond. They needed to respond to this news that had been delivered to them. And as I see it, they had a couple different options before them. You see, they could have repented of their disbelief, and they could have come to the realization that Jesus indeed was their Messiah. They could have sought Him out, and they could have worshipped Him as the Son of God, and used every opportunity to tell others about their discovery. They could have, at the very least, as I look at it, I think, well, at the very least, come on. You could have, at the very least, went and investigated the information from the soldiers for yourselves, okay? Uh, this this really intrigues me, this idea, okay? There's no mention at all of the religious leaders going to investigate the claim. Nowhere do you read in the accounts. You don't read anything in the book of Acts about that. They don't go. They don't go look and see for themselves. They don't look at the evidence Perhaps they didn't want to have to face the facts regarding the empty tomb. We don't know why, but they don't even bother to do that. They could have just completely dismissed the news and the events, and they could have left, just left things be, and they could have waited to hear what kind of word would get spread around uh, and then reacted to it. They didn't do any of those things. Instead, they chose to disregard The miraculous appearing of a heavenly being, the accompanying earthquake, the rolled away stone, and the empty tomb, they just completely disregard all of them. But that's not all. They also bribed the soldiers to perpetrate a lie that they made up. And it wasn't even that good of a lie. Tell them His disciples came at night and stole Him away while we slept. You know why that sounds foolish, right? If you're thinking about it, okay? If, if they were sleeping, how would they know that it was Jesus' disciples that took away the body, okay? That, it reminds me of a scene maybe some of you parents are, are, are familiar with. Uh, you're gathered around the dinner table. You're praying over your food. And, and as you close in prayer, one of your kids blurts out, Jonah had his eyes open during prayer. Now, if you're like me, you kind of play along for just a few seconds. You you know, no way. I can't believe it. That's so terrible. I can't believe they would do such a thing. And, and then you ask them, so, so Caleb, how did you know that Jonah's eyes were open during prayer? And then you kind of get that blank, like, you know, deer in the headlight look in their face. Uh, it, it's kind of like that. When you think about it, it's not much different. It was the disciples that came, okay? And they took the body away while we were sleeping. Really? And how did you know it was the disciples? You know, did they leave a a post-it note inside the tomb? Disciples were here, you know, kind of a thing. How did you know? You would think that they would be able to come up with something a little bit better than that. You know, it's funny because as we, as we consider the options that these religious leaders had to choose from, I think it begs the question of us. And that question is, what will we do with the message that's been presented to us? Will we readily receive it? have it lead us into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, where we find ourselves seeking Him out, worshiping Him and sharing His message with any and all around us? Will we, will we at least look at the evidence ourselves and, and take serious the implications of the message of Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection? Will we then act upon the conclusion that we come to based upon the evidence Will we just dismiss the news and, and wait around to see what others and how others uh, act, and then respond accordingly, or will we just completely disregard the message, you know, and, and instead live out and, and perpetrate a lie, denying the Lord? You know, maybe not so much with our words, but with our actions. And you know, they say that that actions speak louder than words sometimes. What will you do with the message? What will you do with the message that Jesus Christ has defeated death, he has proven himself to be the Son of God, and that he offers to those who would believe on his name eternal life? What will you do with that message? Well, these soldiers, okay, they agreed to take the bribe and to tell the lie. They were given a large sum of money and, and given assurance that if news reached to the governor that the chief priest would appease him and protect them. Uh, obvious indication that they'd probably have to line Pontius Pilate's uh, pockets with some money as well to appease him. Uh, they gave money to uh, Judas. They gave money to uh, the governor, or excuse me, the soldiers here. And it would seem like they would eventually have to give money to the governor as well. We don't know how much money. The amount of money is described as a large sum of money. Okay? Just how large, we can't say. But if you ask me, it had to be a very large amount of money. Okay? For one, they had to be willing to go along with what was a pretty foolish lie. Okay? Uh, One that we already pointed out doesn't hold much water. And so the fact that they would be willing to perpetrate that lie, to me it would have to be something really worth it. But even more important than that was that the lie they had to tell was them admitting that they had fallen asleep on the job and allowed the body of Jesus to be taken under their watch. And we might not think that's that big of a deal, but if you look at other New Testament books and you look at other accounts, we understand and come to realize that that is a very serious offense. In the book of Acts, we see evidence that would, that would suggest that this would have been a capital offense. In Acts chapter 12, we will read uh, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll read of the account of Peter being set free from prison and how the next day the guards in charge of keeping the watch, they were examined by Herod, and you know what Herod did? He sentenced them to death. Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Later on, when Paul was imprisoned with Silas, and a great earthquake occurred, and the prison doors were shaken to the very foundation, and they all flung open, and the chains fell off all of the prisoners. You guys remember what happened. Uh, The Philippian jailer that was on watch, he woke up from a sleep and seeing the prison doors open, and assuming that the prisoners had escaped, he was about to fall on his own sword and commit suicide. And just before he did, Paul called out to him and told him not to do, any, do himself any harm, for they were all still there. From what we read in the book of Acts, it would seem that admitting to falling asleep on the job and having something under your care and supervision go missing was something that could cause you to be killed for, for that reason. And and that's what leads me to believe that this was more than just, you know, a pocket full of coins. But a very large sum of money. Large enough that they were willing to put their very lives in the hands of the chief priest, Should word of this lie be brought to their superior and ultimately to the governor. Without the large sum of money as bribery and the assurance of protection, I don't believe there would be any way that these soldiers would have perpetrated such a condemning lie to admit that they did something worthy of being murdered or worthy of being uh, killed for. It would have been easier for them just to tell the truth regarding the miracle that they were witness to than to lie and say they, they fell asleep on the job. Whatever the amount was, it was high enough for them to be willing to make themselves out to be fools and even risk their life. They were bought by the chief priests. You know, I believe that there's some today who have been bought for a whole lot less and are willing to perpetrate lies for free, unfortunately. Let's continue here, looking at this. At the end of verse 15, Matthew writes that this saying of the soldiers, this lie that originated with the chief priest and the elders, that it was still being commonly reported to the day that, uh, when he wrote his gospel record. You know, unfortunately, this lie and others like it are still going around even to this day. This lie is commonly referred to as the theft theory. there's all sorts of theories about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This one's called the theft theory, that Jesus' body was stolen away by the disciples. Of, Of course, this theory explains the empty tomb, but it does nothing to combat the evidence of the hundreds of witnesses that saw the risen Christ. There's another theory called the swoon theory. Okay, the swoon theory is a popular one that's been around for some time. Uh, it suggests that Jesus Christ, he never really died. Okay? That, that uh, he simply fainted or he swooned. Okay? And, and then was resuscitated in the dark cool of the temple. He came back uh, and was able to strip himself of the linen cloth, uh, roll away the tomb and, and uh, join with the disciples. This theory tries its best to work around all the different evidence of, of the Scripture. It tries to explain away the empty tomb by suggesting that he rolled the large stone away himself and escaped the watch of the Roman soldiers. And then he proceeded to reveal himself to the others, thus trying to circumvent the eyewitnesses' uh, accounts of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, the big problem, with, well, there's lots of problems with all these, but one of the big problems with this theory is that it would be impossible Impossible for a man that had been beaten like he was, and then crucified, to then a few days later roll away a stone that he would have no grip of. Okay, the, if you've ever seen pictures of it, it's a it's a hewn out rock. It's a flat entrance. Okay, and they roll a big huge rock in front of it. From the inside, it's just a squared out opening, and there's you have nothing to. It's just flat rock. And there's nothing to grab. There's nothing to to roll, okay? Uh even if he had like the strongest grip ever, okay? Uh he wouldn't have had the strength in his arms, okay? They his arms in crucifixion would have been dislocated in every single joint starting from the shoulder working its way down all the way to the wrist. Okay? If someone's got a dislocated shoulder and an elbow and a wrist, do you think they're going to be able to roll away a big huge stone that they can't even really grip? <laughs> that makes no sense let alone to then walk on feet that had gaping holes in them several miles with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and to the other places that he was seen later on that very day in Jerusalem? Yeah, the swoon theory doesn't hold much water. There's a theory called the hallucination theory that suggests the eyewitness disciples simply hallucinated seeing Jesus. It was just something they wanted to see and so they, they saw it. Okay? Uh, and... <laughs> It was just their mind playing tricks on them. And this, of course, it it explains why so many people were able to say, yeah, we saw him, but it does nothing to explain or take into account the empty tomb. If you just hallucinated him, well, why is his body not in the tomb then? There's the impersonation theory that suggests someone was impersonating Jesus, that the individual saw by others was not the same man that had been crucified. And this, of course, explains the empty tomb, or excuse me, doesn't explain the empty tomb, nor does it take into account the details of Thomas. If you guys remember what Thomas uh, went through. Thomas, he, he saw and he touched the wounds upon the resurrected Christ. You wouldn't be able to replicate the wounds of crucifixion. It couldn't have been someone just impersonating, someone that looked like Jesus. There's the spiritual resurrection theory. This theory suggests that Jesus' resurrection was not one of a physical nature, but just a spiritual one. Uh, Again, this doesn't account for the empty tomb, nor the fact that the ladies clung to him in worship, and the uh, the offer for Thomas to touch his wounds, if he was just spiritual, then they couldn't have grabbed him, couldn't have touched him like that. These and countless others are all lies and they're excuses that try to work around the evidence of Jesus' resurrection account. None of them are sufficient to explain all the different accounts that we have of Jesus regarding His resurrection and His appearance after after He was crucified. The only logical conclusion... One could come to that lines up with all the evidence is that Jesus Christ was physically resurrected from the grave. Now there's a a couple, you know, Lee Strobel's an investigative reporter. He's written a number of great books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, The Case for Easter, a number of different things. And he comes at these things from a, 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 a journalistic point of view. He's an investigative reporter, and he looks at all the evidence and I was reading one of his books this week in preparation for the study, and and there's just, if you look at the evidence, there's no other conclusion that you can come to. Unfortunately, people would rather believe in a lie than look at the evidence for themselves. Mark Twain is attributed to once saying that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is lacing up its boots. Lies, they spread like wildfire. They often kindle other lies and have potential for great destruction just like a real fire. And this lie set forth by the religious leaders and perpetrated by the Roman soldiers had started all sorts of other lies each one leaving a wave of destruction behind them of people who would not, who would refuse, would not simply look for themselves into the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would rather believe in and perpetrate a lie. We need to be careful, okay? Talked about this last week. I talked about the importance of the resurrection, Okay? We have no faith without the resurrection. And and we don't desperately cling on to it like we hope it's... We have a sure foundation. There's no other explanation that can account for all the different eyewitnesses, that can account for the different gospel accounts, other than He rose from the dead. And we get to not... Kind of hide it. Oh no, I kind of believe in this weird thing. We get to boldly proclaim the resurrection and say, test it yourself. Seek out the evidence yourself. We have that trust in the resurrection. Let's continue. Verse 16 says Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's a time gap here in between verse 15 and 16. Okay, we don't know how long a time gap exactly, but we can guess that it's probably around or at least about 10 days of a time gap here. Okay? We know that there's a time gap based upon the details of the other gospel records given to us. Okay, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, that first day of the week, Sunday he appeared to a couple different groups of people, all of which were in the area of Jerusalem. Okay? He appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other ladies that came to the tomb. He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Okay, which was uh, They were leaving from Jerusalem, making their way to Emmaus. And uh, scripture tells us it's about seven miles away. Then later in the evening, he appeared before the disciples. And all but Thomas was there. He ditched church. And he missed out because Jesus showed up. So I'm not saying make your own application. okay? We're told that eight days later, he appeared again to the disciples and this time Thomas was there. He learned his lesson. okay? John tells us that after this meeting, Jesus met his disciples one other time by the Sea of Tiberias, okay? uh, which is one of the names of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, uh, there you'll recall he had breakfast with his disciples and it was there that Jesus would restore Peter uh, asking him three different times, do you love me? And Peter, you know, that it, kind of correlates with the three uh, denials. Okay, denied him three times and he asks him three times, do you love me? And at the end of it all, he says, you know, and he he, he encourages him and he restores him. It's quite possible that this meeting spoken of here in Matthew, it corresponds to the one that John tells us about when Jesus was at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Others even speculate that this could be uh, the time when he appeared before over 500 of his followers as spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Okay, uh, that's a uh, maybe not so known of a fact, okay? The scriptures tell us that there was over 500 people that saw him. This isn't just a small group of disciples getting together and plotting and scheming and saying, let's make up a story, you know, and, and that he rose from the dead. 500 people, over 500 people saw him, resurrect uh, his resurrected body. And many people believe that it could have been... Uh, there in Galilee, because it was a very prominent location for Jesus. As he spent a majority of his ministry years traveling around in the area of Galilee, it would have made sense for him to have a large following in Galilee. This, of course, would also explain the wording here in Matthew. Matthew says that the disciples worshipped the Lord, but some doubted. Knowing that Jesus has already appeared before the disciples previously, Okay, even even doubting Thomas, right, as we call him that, uh, he's referred to, it it leads me to believe that there were other people there that met Jesus in Galilee on the mountainside for the first time since his death. When he first appeared to the disciples, people were amazed and shocked. Thomas doubted. He appeared to them again. Thomas was, he was good to go. He wasn't doubting anymore. Okay. I do not believe that it was the 11 disciples who were doubting. They had already been convinced of the risen Lord. Um, Excuse me, lost my place. Uh, uh, But some of the others from amongst the crowd, this may have been their first time seeing the risen Lord. So uh, regardless uh, of who was doubting, their doubt is understood to have not lasted very long. Hey, the, the word doubt here in the Greek, it actually suggests the idea of hesitation more so than it does disbelief. It's as if they doubted, it was kind of like they paused, they're, they're still processing in their mind. It wasn't a matter of, I'm not, not like Thomas, where Thomas was like, I'm not going to believe it until I put my finger in his, in his wounds and my hand in his side. Uh, that's not, it was not the same type of doubt, okay, of disbelief. It was a doubt of hesitation. People hesitated. Uh, Some hesitated to act in worship as they were no doubt overwhelmed uh, to see the resurrected Jesus alive and well. This meeting in Galilee was the one that the angel told the ladies at the tomb to remind the disciples of. We noted last week how Jesus had told them on the night in which he was betrayed that they would all stumble. They would all be made to stumble because of him but that he would meet with them in Galilee. And here we see Jesus keeping his word and meeting with his disciples in Galilee. You know, as I consider the idea of of Jesus appearing before all the different disciples and walking with them and and eating with them, I, I get a little bit jealous to think just how blessed they must have been to see him after the resurrection. But then I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Thomas. Thomas, he told the other disciples that he wouldn't believe that Jesus was risen from the grave unless he could put his finger into the hole in his hands and put his hand into his side that he would not believe. And eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and he gave him that opportunity to touch his wounds. And Thomas obviously was overwhelmed. He declared, My Lord... And my God, he was overwhelmed. And and then Jesus said something very important to Thomas, which I believe was not only for Thomas, but I believe it was meant to be an encouragement to us as well. He said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, we may look back upon those guys with a little bit of jealousy and maybe even begin to think how much of a blessing that it would have been to see Him in the flesh. But Jesus indicates here that we, those of us who haven't seen, that we're the blessed ones. For we believe even though we have not seen with our own eyes the risen Lord and He promises, you're blessed are those people, okay? You saw, and that's why you believe. But blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen. That's us. We're blessed. I think that word was for, for Thomas, but I think it was for us as well. We don't need to look back and be jealous of them and think, man, how awesome that... I mean, it would have been really awesome. But we have the blessing. We have that blessing. Okay. Be encouraged. You are blessed, more so than those who needed to see in order to believe. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. These final verses in Matthew's Gospel are, are commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Okay, you probably have heard that before. Your Bible even probably has a heading above it that says the Great Commission. Okay? Uh, of course, the instructions given in these verses, they are not greater than any other commandment uh, that the Lord has given to us. Uh, I imagine we call it the Great Commission, not because it holds rank over other commandments but because of the great impact it has when followed. The scope of this commission is great, and it is a mandate to multiply devoted followers of Jesus Christ across the entire world. The Great Commission involves different actions. And I was thinking about, I was like, we can maybe do one more week in Matthew, and I'll just hit the Great Commission, and we'll spend a lot of time in that. But I thought, nope, we're not going to do that. We're moving on, okay, but we're, so we're just going to make some observations about the Great Commission, okay, uh, and and there's lots of great books out there, and there's conferences and DVDs you can watch, you know, whole entire uh, things just on the Great Commission. It's wonderful. It involves a lot of different actions, but but the overarching mandate, the verb that is written in the imperative mood, which means it's a commandment, okay, is the verb here translated? Make disciples. Uh, in the English it says make disciples, but in the Greek it's actually just one word. And it's a verb written in the imperative mood. It's a commandment to make disciples. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Okay, uh, Let me repeat that. The Great Commission is to make disciples. The Great Commission does not involve making disciples. It is Making disciples. I think that this is very important to highlight. Some have mistakenly come to believe that the Great Commission is simply to go and proclaim the gospel. That telling someone the gospel is all you have to do in order to fulfill the Great Commission. Telling someone the gospel is great. It is wonderful. But it's only one aspect of the Great Commission. Jesus' command was not to simply share a message. Nor was the Great Commission a commandment to make converts. If you do share the Gospel, and the Holy Spirit convicts someone, and they respond to the Gospel, and come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is an incredible thing. That is a wonderful thing. The the angels in heaven rejoice. I've had the privilege of sharing the gospel with someone and having them respond in faith. It is a great thing to be a part of. I would encourage and hope that you could all experience that one day. But that is not the fulfillment of the Great Commission either. The fulfillment of the Great Commission is to make disciples. Disciples. Disciples are defined, I have a, a, a fancy dictionary that looks up uh, words in the original lec- language, it's called a lexicon, okay? and it says that, that this word disciples is defined as an adherent who accepts the instruction given to him and makes it his rule of conduct. Basically, a disciple of Jesus Christ not only accepts the teachings of Jesus Christ, but lives his life governed by those teachings. His conduct in life is ruled by Christ. That is what a disciple is. Jesus listed two things we are to do in completing this incredible task of making disciples. We are to baptize them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And number two, we are to teach them to observe all the things that Jesus commanded. Baptism. Okay, baptism is something that is very important in the life of a believer. Okay? It is one of the two ordinances left for the church to observe. Some have come to me and asked about our stance uh, on baptism. I know people come from different backgrounds, maybe different denominations, and so that's an important question, and I don't mind answering that question. As you'll notice, we don't have a baptismal here at our church like some other churches do. But just because we don't have a baptismal pool doesn't mean that we don't think baptism is important. Baptism is very important. In fact, baptism, as we see here, is part of the Great Commission we have been mandated to be baptized. It's not a do it if you feel like it kind of thing. It's like, well, I think I want to do that. It's a commandment. It's we've been mandated to be baptized. However, I do not believe that baptism is something that is tied to our salvation. So although I think every believer ought to be baptized... It is not something that will keep you from salvation. Salvation is not of works. We are not saved by being baptized in water. Okay? We are saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us. What is baptism then? Okay. Baptism is an outward demonstration that is symbolic of your belief in and association with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism should only be done for people that have made their own personal decision to believe in and follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, we as a church, we do not do baby baptisms here. And I know some of you maybe were baptized as babies, and maybe you've even had your children, uh, uh, your babies baptized. Okay, I'm not saying that it, it's, it's. Uh, I'm saying we don't do it here. <laughs> okay. Parents cannot make the dis- choice for their child; it has to be a personal decision. And, and as a person is laid down uh, in the water. During baptism, it pictures Jesus's body that was laid down for us upon the cross. It symbolizes Jesus's death, as well as our own death to sin. The person is fully submerged. Okay, we are a, a dunk you all the way, and if you've really been bad, we hold you down a little bit longer. Okay. <laughs> dunk you down, hold you down there. Uh, um, and, and that is a picture of Jesus's burial. Okay? Uh, and then we lift the person back up out of the water. Thus picturing his resurrection as well as the new life that has been given to us. And so it's a beautiful picture of our association with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? As we would be laid down and we would be buried and then to rise back up and we have new life. It is symbolic of that association that we have in jesus christ we as a church do baptisms upon request okay Uh, if someone expresses an interest in being baptized then what i do is i look at a calendar and i say okay well what do you guys think when's a good day throw out a couple different dates maybe talk about it with them and then look to do it Um, we like to do it in uh, our baptisms in public places because it is to be a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ. And, and as a church, I know that we've done baptisms over by the uh, the Kintai and the Nishiki River, and we've done them on base in the heated pool during the colder months. Okay? Um, place isn't as important as the symbolism, right? If you are uh, If you're here today and you haven't been baptized... Okay, and, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I would strongly encourage you to be baptized. Okay? Uh, and, and I would love to be there to support you in fulfilling part of the Great Commission to be baptized. And it's a great opportunity for the church body to come alongside you and encourage you and support you as well. And so baptism, okay, a very important aspect to fulfilling the Great Commission of making disciples. The second part of completing the great commission involves teaching others to observe jesus's commandments you know here at calvary uh we we place a great significance upon the teaching of the word of god uh, as part of our duty to fulfill the great commission and to make disciples of jesus christ and i know i've talked to people before and it's okay you know and they're like i'm not used to you know 45 50 minutes of teaching it's kind of a lot I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we try and get you standing up before uh, uh, so that you can last the 45, 50 minutes. Uh, but uh, teaching is very important, it's part of the Great Commission. Okay. Added to our importance of Bible teaching is the style in which we teach the Bible. We want to teach you all of His commandments, and that's why we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We don't want to leave anything out. Jesus said to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. And so we don't pick and choose where we're going to teach from. We just start and we keep going. Okay? So that we can say we've covered it all. And I know that you guys aren't with me for the amount of time it will take us to get through the whole Bible. But uh, you know, if you extend and then get a job on base as a contractor and then <laughs> retire... Uh, we might be able to get it done together. It would be fun. You know, there's, there's something else I want to point out here uh, about the Great Commission to make disciples. And it's, it's this. It's really simple. But the Great Commission is for all of us. Some have mistakenly come to the conclusion that disciple making is something for the pastor to do and perhaps the church leadership. That is not true we are all called to be doing our part in completing the Great Commission. Every one of you should either be in a position of being discipled or discipling someone else. Discipleship it doesn't have to be something formal, like a, a 10-week study. And those are great. I've done some of those before. You get a discipleship book. There's a couple different series of books that you can go through together. And those are wonderful. Okay? But it doesn't have to be that way. Primarily, discipleship is relationship-based. Disciple the people that you hang out with. Or seek discipleship from the brothers or sisters that you hang out with. Do a a weekly lunch prayer meeting or a small Bible study together. Share your life with others. Pour into them. Let others pour into you. Discipleship doesn't have to be rocket science. Just determine to invest in someone else. Come alongside them. Help them grow in their walk with the Lord. Encourage them to live their life according to the Lord and according to his word. Look around this room. Certainly, there are people here that you see outside of these church walls, right? I know it's a small base, okay? You guys can't fool me. Perhaps you work with some of these people. Or maybe some of these people are your neighbors. Invest in one another. Teach one another to live for Christ. Discipleship, it it doesn't have to be hard. It's about relationships. It's about pouring into one another. There's a whole bunch of us all right here. And we have so much in common. You guys... I've heard many talks about the fishbowl and, and how everybody's, you see everybody every day, okay? Love on each other. Pour into one another. Make an investment in each other. That's what discipleship is about. Okay? One last thing I want to comment on about the Great Commission, and it's this. Jesus Christ is with you every step of the way. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And added to what Jesus said in verse 18, that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, let us know that we have all the power we need to accomplish this great task of making disciples of all the nations. Some of you feel like you don't know enough to help others or to pour into others, and that's simply not true. If you know the Lord, then you know enough. Step up, step out in faith, and watch the Lord work. And if you want help or you need advice, seek the assistance uh, of a more experienced uh, uh, disciple, a more experienced believer, someone who's been walking with the Lord for a while. Allow them to pour into you so that you might pour into others. The Great Commission given to us is to make disciples. Okay? That is what the Great Commission is. It's make disciples. It involves baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It involves teaching people all things that Jesus commanded. It's for each and every one of us. And we have a fact, not a promise, it's a fact, that Jesus is with us every step of the way. Today we're going to partake of communion. Okay. Previously, I mentioned that baptism was one of the two ordinances left for us uh, in the church. Communion is the other one. These two ordinances, it's a, it's a blessing. It's, you know, if you think about these two ordinances that were left to us, uh, they both point to these major events in the life of Jesus Christ okay. the crucifixion and the resurrection. You see, baptism, as as we just mentioned, is symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That coming back up out of the water. That new life. It's a picture of the resurrection. Communion, on the other hand, reminds us of the crucifixion. And as we partake of communion, we are reminded of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And the blood that was poured out for us upon the cross of Calvary. And so we're going to partake of communion. Communion is something for believers. Okay, if you're not a believer this morning, you can have a snack. Okay, because that's what it will amount to be. Uh, for believers, it's it's something very important. It's symbolic. The bread, as we'll discuss, it represents the body. Okay, the cup it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, as we partake of it, we are associating ourselves with that. We're saying, yes, I identify myself with the broken body of Jesus Christ. I identify myself and allow the blood of Jesus Christ to have washed over me, to wash me clean, to make me white as snow. Communion is very important. And so we're going to take some time to partake of communion. The worship team, I'm going to invite them to come back up. And the ushers, uh, if you can uh, grab the elements... Uh, and here's what I'd like to do this morning. Uh, the worship team's going to uh, just lead us in a time of worship. You can worship the Lord. Uh, the ushers, they're going to pass out uh, both elements, the, the bread and the cup. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to them. Okay? And after everyone has received uh, the bread and the cup, I'll come back up and I'll uh, close this and we'll partake together as a family, uh, as a body together. All right? All right. The. Austin and Andre, you guys can start as soon as you get up here.
1: Your touch restores my life. So I wait for you, and so I wait for you. your all this heart is living for me. I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. Jesus, your all this heart is living I wait for you, so I wait for you. I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. Jesus, your all this heart is lit. For I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me, Jesus, your all, this heart is there.
0: Jesus on uh, the night that he would be betrayed, he was partaking of uh, a Jewish uh, festival meal, the Passover meal, and it was at that time that uh, he instituted uh, the Lord's Supper, or what we commonly refer to as communion. If you turn back just a couple pages, if you're there in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, we read, in verse 26 it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It's amazing to think uh, on this night that he knows what's coming in the night. Uh, Even after this institution of the Lord's Supper, he'll be in the garden and he'll be sweating drops of blood as he's just in anguish. Uh, over what lies before him his, the, the, the pain uh, the separation from the father but he, he does so uh, willingly he does so uh, with a heart for us and so uh, when we take part of the, the cracker yeah, it's just a it's just a cracker Um but it's symbolic uh, of his body, and we, we break the cracker like his body was broken for us. And so uh, as we partake of the cracker, we identify ourselves with the broken body of Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you will, partake with me, the bread. Verse uh, 27, it says, Then He took the cup, and He gave thanks. And He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That night, he, he passed uh, the cup. And they, actually, in the Jewish uh, meal, there's uh, many different cups that would be passed around. Uh, this cup is known to be the cup of, of redemption. And, and here, he he symbolizes that there's a new covenant. In the old covenant, was you had to uh, lay your hands upon animals and confess your sins on animals. And then they would sacrifice those animals. And it would just kind of hold you over. And every year you had to kind of keep coming back and doing that. He says, no longer are we under that. Okay? A new covenant. The Lamb of God would be slain for us. He would be uh, shed His blood for us. And in this blood is the new covenant. Okay? That we can come to Him uh, by grace. Through faith. Uh, no longer animal sacrifices uh, one sacrifice for all and so as we partake of, of the cup we're saying yes I agree with that I agree with that new covenant I believe in that new covenant the, the blood of Jesus Christ it washes me it cleanses me it gives me a right standing with the Lord and this is just grape juice but again it's, it's symbolic of okay, of the blood of Jesus Christ and so as we partake we're saying yes yes to that new covenant yes that is me I associate with you thank you for that new covenant and as we partake as well it's interesting because he says but I say to you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom as we partake of communion it's not only remembering back but it's, always, it's also looking forward it's looking forward to that day when we're going to be able to be with him at that uh, marriage feast of the, of the Lamb, and we're going to partake of the cup with Him. And he says, I'm not going to do it again until that time. And so it's not only looking back and remembering what He did for us, but it's also looking forward to when we're going to be reunited with Him. Amen? Let's partake of the cup. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for getting us uh, through the book of Matthew. What a wonderful time it's been. Your word is amazing. Lord, it is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it cuts to places only you know uh, about, Lord. Father, we we pray that as we go out this week, uh, this day, uh, Lord, that we would be about making disciples that we would do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Lord, that we would be bold and that we would be confident that You are with us. You will lead us and guide us and give us everything that we need. You are enough, Lord. And we thank You for all that You've given to us, all that You've done for us. Lord, we are not worthy. We give You praise, honor, and glory. You alone are are worthy of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.